passage open the entire time as we'll be going through that together this morning. John eleven seventeen to 27. find this on page 897 and the Bible's provided. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die." Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, believe it or not, just in about four months, we will reach our third anniversary as the church at West Creek. That's really hard to believe. And in the three years of West Creek, we've gone through several books of the Bible here on Sunday mornings. We've gone through Ephesians and Nehemiah. We've gone through Leviticus, Titus, Proverbs, Numbers, 1 Peter, a collection of Psalms, and just about half of the Gospel of John. That's a lot of Bible. In fact, it was just about two years ago that we started going through the Gospel of John. We covered four chapters in 2021, five in 2022, and we'll cover five chapters this year. Now, when we started it all, I could, have, I could have never have known what was going to happen over the course of those two years since we started, John, and least of which, I couldn't have known what would happen this week, the week leading up to when we scheduled to cover John 11, 17 to 27. But I trust that God knew what would happen. God knew exactly what we would need after dealing with the death of our beloved brother, Doug Mix. In front of us today is a passage that's about Jesus coming to someone who is reeling in the loss of her physical brother. How appropriate that Jesus brings her from grief to hope and that hope centers on who he is. And just this whole really perfect providential timing reminded me of something, and I hope that it reminds you of something, that we might not preach headlines and hot topics of the day, we find it God's wisdom to preach systematically, consecutively through books of the Bible. And you might wonder if that keeps us from being relevant, but I want a day like today to remind you that when we let the word of God drive the agenda for our worship, drive the agenda for our lives, God will remind us of things. God will remind us not just how relevant his word is, God will remind us how permanent his word is. So what does the Holy Spirit inspire John to write in John 11, 17 to 27? We might summarize it like this. 
Jesus comes to Martha in her doubt and grief, and he brings her new life. And he does that by leading her to believe the truth about himself. We're going to trace this progression that Jesus takes Martha on uh, throughout this passage. He takes her from grief. He takes her from just general faith. And he leads her to the truth about himself as the glorious Christ. And my friend, it's my prayer for you today that God would take you in some way on that same progression that he took Martha on. Maybe he needs to take that, lead you on that progression for the first time this morning. Or maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, but you have come to realize, and maybe even right now, that he seems absent. That there are times that it's going to feel like in your life how it felt for Mary and Martha and Lazarus that you just don't hear from the Lord. They didn't hear from him for four days. Four days without a word from him. Last week, we saw how you can trust Jesus in those desperate and delayed and dangerous moments. And this week, we're gonna see how you can approach Jesus in those moments. This, today, we're gonna see what Jesus can do with messy situations and broken hearts. So let's trace this progression that Jesus takes Martha on. Let's go back all the way to the beginning of this passage in verse 17. Before we get specific details about Martha, John does what he often does. He narrates the action for us. Jesus makes it to Bethany after what would have been a several day journey from where he was, that is beyond the Jordan River. And when he arrives, he finds that Lazarus hasn't just been dead for four days. He finds that Lazarus has been buried for four days, like the funeral's over. It's, there's no question, there's no doubt this man has truly died. You might think this, this is, happens really quickly. He's been buried already for four days. Well, this process happens quickly in a place like Israel, likely not for any deeper meaningful reason, but just simply because Israel is a place that's really hot. You keep a body out more than a day, it's going to decay quickly. So Jesus finds that Lazarus is dead and buried for four days. And once again, John just narrates what's going on for us. John flags for us Bethany's proximity to Jerusalem, Israel's capital. It's likely a nod to his readers who weren't familiar with Israel's geography, but I think it's also another reminder that Bethany is near Jerusalem. It's another reminder that Jesus is willing to go into the lion's den. You might remember what we noticed last week in verse 8. Jesus' disciples attempt to give Jesus something of a history lesson. They say, Jesus, I don't know if you remember, but let us remind you. Let us jog your memory. You know those people in Jerusalem? They've tried to kill you not once, not twice. They've tried to kill you three times, Jesus, and you want to go back there. Jesus going to Bethany to help Lazarus is the same reason he'll go to the cross to help us. He prioritizes the good of others over preserving himself. John is narrating for us, the op- opening this scene for us before we get to the main action. John indicates for us that there are more people involved than just Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He tells us many of the Jews came to console Mary and Martha concerning their brother. Now, consoling around a death was a community event in that time and place. It was a custom. And sometimes John uses this title called the Jews to refer to the religious authorities, but I don't think he's doing that here. It would be really surprising if people like the Pharisees would come and care for friends of Jesus. Jesus was their sworn enemy, after all. 
But still, if many people are willing to show up to visit just this one village family, it probably shows that Mary and Martha and Lazarus's family had some measure of influence, right? Because it's not likely that every village family would have received the same treatment. We see another hint of the family's affluence in chapter 12, just the next chapter. Mary anoints Jesus with what? It says expensive oil, oil ointment. So I think a couple of things are going on here, even in these opening details. It seems to be the Lord's design to handpick this family that would garner a big group of consolers. Because this big group of consolers would become a big group of witnesses. So God's displaying his sovereign wisdom even here and who he permits this to happen to. And I think another thing's going on here as well. I think this is just another instance of Jesus's impartial heart. We noticed this last week, that the people who Jesus loves don't fit into a single mold. In the Gospel of John so far, Jesus has displayed love for an embarrassed Pharisee. He's displayed love for a scandalous woman. He's displayed love for a paralyzed beggar. And here he displays love for what seems to be a wealthy, small-town family. In an age that we live in of polarization and tribalism, endless divisions, where the other side is the enemy and we must hate them, doesn't Jesus stand out? That he unites all types of people around himself. So John is finished narrating the action for us, and now we finally get into it in verse 20. He zooms in his camera to focus on Martha. And notice John writes, she doesn't see Jesus coming. What happens? She hears that he's coming. Now remember, her and her sister Mary sent out a report to Jesus simply stating, Jesus, he whom you love, is sick. Now it makes sense. If she hears that Jesus is coming, it could be that these sisters were waiting expectantly for him. Maybe they dispatched one of their friends to the edge of the village of Bethany. He says, hey, listen, if you see what looks like a 30-something-year-old rabbi with 12 dudes coming behind him, come and let us know. And after four days of silence, Martha springs up to meet Jesus at the first news of his arrival. And now what Martha's going to say to Jesus, it's really complicated. And we're going to get to that in a second. But here, in her simple action of getting up out of her house to go to meet Jesus, she is to be commended. And it seems that John wants us to recognize that also. Look at how he contrasts Martha with her sister, Mary, again in verse 20. At the news of Jesus' arrival, Martha goes out to meet Jesus. And what does Mary do? Remains seated in the house. You know, Martha's still dealing with a host of questions. Martha's faith, as we continue reading, seems to be shot through with doubt, shot through with hesitation. But even with all that going on, you know what Martha does anyway? She takes all of that and goes to Jesus. Friend, this is an important lesson for you and me, that you don't have to get all of your thoughts, all of your emotion, all of your junk fixed up before you look up. If your heart and your life feels like a messy knot that you just can't untangle, my friend, you have one or two options. You can either take Martha's path 
Or you can take Mary's path. You can either take that messy, tangled knot to the Lord and say, God, please untangle this for me. Or you can just stare at that knot hopelessly. You know, it reminds me of one of the ways that God corrected his people in the Old Testament through the prophet Hosea. Now, if you've read Hosea, you know that it's really a devastating book. And a lot of it is about how God's people are like a bride who repeatedly cheats on her husband. And in one portion of the book, God's people find themselves under threat. They find themselves in trouble. And here's what God says to them in Hosea 7, verse 14. He says, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their bed. You know, the Holy Spirit seems to bring that verse to my mind whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed. He brings that verse to my mind whenever I'm wallowing in self-pity, whenever I'm frustrated or angry or despairing about my situation. In those moments, this verse reminds me that I have one or two choices, that I can cry on my bed, Mary's path, or I can cry to my God, Martha's path. Now, you might be here this morning thinking that the Lord is distant from you today. You might be here this morning thinking that the Lord in some way is indifferent to you. That's how you feel. You might feel like the Lord doesn't care about what's happening in my life. But friend, I I want you, I, I humbly submit to you that it could be, if you feel that way, it could be that you're actually more like Mary in this story. That you might feel that the Lord is distant from you, but the truth is the Lord has actually come close to you. It's just that you haven't gone out to him. The Lord, think about it, the Lord is present here in the gathering of his people, but maybe you've been like Mary and you've remained seated at your house and you haven't been in the gathering of his people. The Lord shows you who he is in his word. He's present there. But maybe you're like Mary, you've remained seated and you've left your word, the Bible, untouched. You know, the Lord's present with prayer. He hears his people in prayer, but maybe like Mary, you've remained seated and you haven't really prayed in a long time. Oh, my friend, go on Martha's path. Don't cry on your bed. Cry out to him. Take the mess to him. And now let me nuance this a little bit. I don't want to oversimplify it. I don't want to tell you that as soon as you take your mess to the Lord, that it's going to be untangled immediately and all your problems are going to be solved. I do not want to say that you are likely going to have to take that mess continually to the Lord. But I want to hold out hope for you, friend, from John chapter 11. Look at what happens to Martha. That by going to Jesus, even with all that she had going on, by going to Jesus, she ends up hearing from Jesus one of the clearest statements of his identity that he ever spoke to anyone. And it's reserved for her and her alone. And look what happens to Mary. By remaining at home, she missed out on it. Take the mess to Jesus. Well, what we said is that Martha, what Martha says to Jesus is complicated. And it really is like a messy knot. Look again at verses 21 and 22. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, on the one hand, you can see there's plenty of positive going on in how she addresses Jesus, right? For one thing, She's confident that that Jesus could have prevented her brother's death. She doesn't say how, but she's sure of it. And for another thing, it's pretty positive that Martha seems to be grateful. She seems to be relieved that Jesus is with them right now. 
But on the other hand, it's still complicated, isn't it? Because within Martha's statement, there might be a slight rebuke. If you had been here. Now, she doesn't go so far to tell Jesus, Jesus, you should have been here. Maybe she understands that her brother likely died as soon as Jesus received the report about his illness. But still, look ahead at verse 32, and her sister Mary says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here. It seems like this statement just involuntarily comes out of these sisters. And it makes you wonder if this is what they talked about when the Lord was silent and they didn't hear from him. It's been four days. If he had been here, if he had been here, if he had only been here. And you know, as well as I know, you start to focus on something like this and that can easily lead you down a dark road, can it? It can lead you down a road of bitterness, of resentment. The old pastor, Matthew Henry, puts it like this. He comments on what Martha tells Jesus. He says, we are apt to add to our trouble by thinking about what might have been. What good does it do? I just think about, you could do this in so many ways. I think about their own situation. Isn't it easy to fixate on what might have been when you're in grief? After you've lost a loved one? Thinking about what if I made this decision? Thinking about what if I noticed the problem sooner? Thinking about what if the doctors did this differently? My friend, you can get stuck in this thinking and you can travel this road and you can get to the point of saying, God, you could have stopped all this from happening if you wanted to. But it seems like Martha catches herself before she says something like that. Martha gives herself a chance to see that Jesus was writing a better story than she could have written herself. So in verse 22, she still has some type of confidence in Jesus. She acknowledges that Jesus has a unique relationship, a unique connection to God the Father. But what she says is complicated. Because if Martha was consistent, if he really does have this unique connection with God the Father, if God the Father really will give Jesus anything he asks, then why would Jesus need to have been there in order to have healed Lazarus? Why would she blame him for that? After all, remember how Jesus healed the Roman centurion's servant without even entering his house. So here is Martha. She has a complicated, messy knot, and she just lays it on Jesus' lap. And in verse 23, Jesus starts to untangle it. He's going to expose to Martha what has caused many of the knots in her heart, and that is her mere general faith. And he kicks it off in verse 23 with just a simple but very thought-provoking promise. He says, Martha, your brother will rise again. Now, what could Jesus mean by that? It does seem like a plain statement, but there's some mystery to it behind it, isn't there? Is Jesus talking literally, or is Jesus talking spiritually? Your brother will rise again. Is this Jesus' way of saying, well, Martha, your brother's in a better place? Is this Jesus saying, or when does Jesus mean this will happen? Does Jesus mean that Lazarus is going to rise again right now, or Lazarus is going to rise again at just some point in the future? Who is going to cause Lazarus to rise again? Will it just happen on its own? Will it be the result of people's prayers? Is Jesus going to have some part to play in it? It's a simple, thought-provoking promise. But you know what? Jesus is purposefully vague here. 
He doesn't tell Martha everything all at once. Instead, Jesus makes a statement like he does here because he wants Martha to articulate what's really going on in her heart, what she truly believes. The way that Martha responds will show what's really in her heart. And before we see how she responds, let's just take a page from Jesus right here. This is a, the, the skill and practice that he uses is a skill and practice that you and I do well to give ourselves to. It, uh, Proverbs 20 verse five says that the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. This is the skill of drawing out someone's heart. Jesus isn't just a man of understanding. He is the man of understanding, the wisdom of God incarnate. We do well to reflect him, though. And when you're trying to help someone through a hard time, when you're speaking to someone in your life who's not a Christian, take a page from Jesus here. Try to see what's actually going on in that person's heart. What are the beliefs behind the statements that they're making? And for you to see that will take you listening very carefully It will take you speaking very purposefully and it will take you, believe it or not, letting the other person talk and you being quiet. And I wonder if Jesus takes this vague tactic with Martha because Martha's really already tipped her hand. She says about Jesus in verse 22, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now let's just pick that statement apart a little bit. That's a very respectful statement. That's a big statement to make. It's a confident assertion. It's a nice thing to say about Jesus. But notice it doesn't actually say much about Jesus himself. She's really only talking about what God the Father can do, not what Jesus can do. And if you think about it, verse 22, what Martha says about Jesus can just as well be said about a faithful prophet. James 5, 17 to 18 talks about Elijah, who was a person just like you and me, but he prayed and God answered What Martha says here isn't much more that could be said about Elijah. So what's going on is Martha's faith isn't fully informed. Martha has faith generally, but Martha doesn't yet have faith in Jesus specifically. And her response in verse 24 confirms that as well. She says, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Resurrection on the last day was a widely held truth for the Jewish people. It comes from places like we read earlier in Ezekiel 37, a chapter that likens the restoration of Israel to their land uh, to the resurrection from the dead. Jesus teaches the resurrection on the last day as well. We've seen it in the Gospel of John in chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. He says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So yeah, Martha has faith generally. Martha would wholeheartedly affirm, yeah, Jesus, I know that death won't have the last word on my brother. And that is really encouraging. In fact, what we read earlier too, 1 Thessalonians 4, it says to encourage one another with these words. Because contrary to modern belief, we don't need to be freed from our physical bodies. No, friends, our physical bodies need to be redeemed. Eternity doesn't look like our souls flying bodiless around in heaven forever. No, eternity looks like our bodies and the entire physical creation being resurrected and restored. For everything to be as it should be, for there to be no more separation from God, this is deeply encouraging. But for as encouraging as this truth is, again, what Martha says has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus. 
she has faith generally, but she hasn't articulated faith in Jesus specifically. I wonder, my friend, is this where you are this morning? Is this where one of your family members is or your neighbor or your friend that you have faith generally, but not faith in Jesus specifically? You know, I I just want to be honest that saying that you believe in God doesn't make you a Christian. The Bible says that even demons believe in God. Having something like a faith, family, and football bumper sticker isn't the same thing as being a Christian. Both of those are examples of faith generally, but not faith in Jesus specifically. I just think this is where many people are that are around us. In fact, one sociologist, Christian Smith, describes the majority of Americans' religious views in five statements. He says, the majority of Americans believe a God who exists, who created and ordered the world, who watches over human life on earth. The majority of Americans believe, secondly, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The majority of Americans believe that the central goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. The majority of Americans, fourthly, believe that God does not need to be particularly involved in your life except when you need him to solve a problem. And the majority of Americans believe, fifthly, that good people go to heaven when they die. When your neighbor or when your friend talks about God, those are usually the beliefs that are behind it. These beliefs come together to form what you may have heard as moral therapeutic deism. You see, in this system of beliefs, Jesus is nice, but he's not necessary. And for Martha, so many of the knots in her heart are due to the fact that she's not clear on who Jesus is. And just like you and me, Martha needs, in order for Martha to have inward peace and stability, in order for Martha to have eternity, Martha needs to be clear on the object on which her faith stands. Faith generally is sinking sand. Faith in Jesus specifically is the solid rock upon which we can stand. So this is what Jesus does for her. Jesus takes her from complicated grief and from her general faith, and Jesus brings her to a clear sight of himself specifically as the glorious Christ. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, I am, yet another reference to equality with the Father, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, this is where it helps to read the Bible in context. I think when you see this in context, you can see how this is a correction and a clarification for Martha. It's like Jesus is telling Martha, Martha, you believe in the resurrection of the dead generally. But Martha, you need to understand something. I don't just teach about the resurrection. Martha, I'm the author. I'm the power behind the resurrection. It's a clarification, it's a correction for Martha. Martha, you need to understand. Yes, I do have a unique connection with God, my Father, like you say. But Martha, I have life in myself. Martha, you need to understand, you might believe in a future resurrection and eternal life. But Martha, listen to me, there is no resurrection, there is no eternal life apart from me. So you see what Jesus is doing for, you, for her. You see how he's untying her knot. He's taking her from faith generally to faith in him specifically. Now, if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then what does that mean for you and me? 
Well, Jesus tells us that it doesn't mean that you and I will absolutely avoid physical death. It means you and I will avoid the sting of death. Notice Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It reminds me, if you've read it, of how uh, that great classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, ends. Christian, the main character, and his friend Hopeful are almost to the celestial city, heaven. But between them and the city, uh, and the city gates was a river. There is no bridge over this river. There's no way around this river. The only way to the gate was through the river. And the river is death. And the waters are deep. And when Christian learns he has to go in, he is scared. He is overwhelmed. But Christian experiences the Lord's faithfulness to keep his promise from Isaiah 43, that when through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Though we die, yet we shall live. Christian, just like us, makes it to the other side. And Jesus says in verse 26 that once we live again, we will never die again. We won't be subjected to what the Bible later calls the second death. That is being cast away from God's presence under his just judgment for eternity. Now, you can see what Jesus emphasizes here in verses 25 and 26. He uses this word believe a lot. So Jesus is saying, guys, this isn't true for everyone. He says this is true for anyone who believes in him. Now, why does it work that way? Why does it work that way? Why does it work that you need to believe in Jesus in order to have eternal life? I've heard it explained like this, that believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus isn't isn't like believing in gravity. you, You and I don't have to think about gravity. You and I don't have to interact with the law of gravity. You and I don't have to contemplate gravity. It automatically works for you, whether or not you think about it, whether or not you believe in it. Believing in Jesus is not like believing in gravity. No, believing in Jesus is more like chemotherapy. It works, but the only way it works is if you receive it. Think of how we explained it earlier. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life If he has life in himself, he is the source that you and I must be plugged into in order to live. And it's our faith is that what plugs us in to him. In fact, when Jesus says, whoever believes in me, he's actually saying more closely, whoever believes into me. So when you believe in Jesus, you are united to him. The life that Jesus has in himself now flows through you. His death goes in your place. His death is the death that you deserve, but he took it for you. His life goes in your place. His life is the life that you need, but can't give to yourself. So friend, that means the most important thing about you right now is whether or not you are plugged in to Jesus. Because if not, you have no life in yourself. That's why we're gonna sing in just a moment that all of our hope in life and death is bound up in Christ alone. And if that's the most important truth about you, the most important question you'll answer is the same one that Jesus asks Martha. Do you see what he asks her just very directly? Martha, do you believe this? Friend, let me ask you directly. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life? Do you believe in him? If not, this is the day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If not, today is the day. Tell him. 
Lord, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you are sent to rescue me and give me life. I believe that I need forgiveness and that I need life and I look in no other place besides you, who you are, what you have done for me, dying in my place and rising again. And if you do believe in Jesus, I want you to reflect on John 11 here and think about the people in your life who don't believe in him. The people in your life who don't believe in Jesus aren't plugged into him and they don't have life in themselves. Let me just ask you, do you love those people enough to ask them the same direct question that he asks Martha? Do you believe this? You know, maybe there's a better and best timing to ask that. Maybe there's a better and best way to ask that. But you still should ask it. I don't know about you. I just avoid asking this. I just expect that people are going to bring this up on their own. Let me tell you, the people in your life won't give you an answer to that question, usually, unless you ask them and ask them directly. So please, my friend, for their their sake, ask them. And what happens when Martha gets asked? How does she respond? Well, she responds by carrying the argument forward. She does believe. And if Jesus really is the resurrection and the life, then he is also the Christ, the son of God, the one who was promised to be sent into the world. You know, Martha actually makes the progression that the people back in chapter 10 failed to make. You know, those people who tried to kill Jesus? Back in chapter 10, the people rejected Jesus as the Christ and they rejected him as the son of God. But here, Martha does what they didn't do. She hears his words, she has seen his works, and she believes. And her messy, complicated knot begins to untangle because what Martha needed most was a clear view of Jesus. So brother, sister, friend, take your mess to him. Don't let your peace, don't let your future rest just on faith generally. Let it rest on him specifically. Let's pray. Oh Lord, on you, the solid rock are on, are on which we stand. And we say all other ground is sinking sand. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but we wholly lean on Jesus' name. God, would you meet people here who are hurting? Would you meet people here who are confused, haven't dealt with themselves? Honestly, just have faith generally. Would you lead each person here to what you are like specifically? and give them life by bringing them faith in your name. We pray in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen.